Greetings, everyone. My name is Ty J. Jordan. I'm a senior psychology major and sociology minor from Baltimore. This is the More Conversations podcast at the Andrew Young Center for Global Leadership. And I'm here today with a very special guest by the name of Dr. Sophia Husson. Please introduce yourself, your work, and your interests for our audience. Hi, Ty J. Thanks so much for having me. Uh, as you said, my name is Sophia Husson. I am a faculty member at Emory University. I'm uh, in the School of Public Health, where I'm an associate professor in the Department of Global Health, um, but I'm also jointly appointed in the School of Medicine. I'm an infectious diseases physician and also see patients at Grady Hospital. Yes. So I know <laughs> that you work within the field of public health. So could mm-hmm. you define public health like in layman's terms and also the significance of public health? Yeah, thank you for that question. I realize it's um, it can be a hard thing to define, but I think probably an easy way to think about it. We all know what health means for an individual person, right? Thinking about your own um, well-being, exercising, eating right, taking care of yourself and making decisions about your health, going to the doctor, et cetera. So in public health, we're thinking about that, but for whole communities at whatever level you define that. Um, so whether it's a identity community, uh, the black community, whether it's the community of your neighborhood, the state, the county, um, working internationally. So at kind of bigger levels, how do we help people be healthier? How do we make decisions that impact people's health? Um, all of that is encompassed in the term public health. I like that. Mm-hmm. So you talk about being a public health researcher in addition to a physician, mm-hmm. um, and specifically throughout the pandemic, um, the American public and Black people uh, struggle a bit to understand why research or public health research is relevant to our lives. So as a researcher, could you make the connection between research policy and health equity? Yeah, I think that's a great question. And I think we all know um, that Black people have a complicated relationship with research, with health research, with medical research, right? Um, Stories like Tuskegee are, are very familiar to many of us. But the flip side of that that I don't get, I don't think is talked about as much is the issue of representation. Um, so, you know, as, as the saying goes, right? Nothing about us without us, right? But that, that applies to health and medical research and things like that as well. So if the only information that we have to learn about medicine and health and human bodies only comes from certain groups, that may not apply to everybody. And, and so just as it's important to not include black people in a way that's harmful to our health, it's also important to include us when we're trying to learn about health and medicine and, and physiology and all of these things. Um, because if we're not represented in the research, the findings aren't going to reflect us and might not apply to us. If, you know, and, and that's how research used to be. Like so many of the original, um, drugs and medications that, that, that have come out. If you go back and look at the studies where they tested those out, they might have been on only older white men or only white college students or all these kinds of things. And so if we're not included in that, um, in a very intentional way, then we don't know if those, those therapies, those interventions are going to be effective for us as well. Um, and so I think that's why it's really important for Black people to be involved in research at all stages. So as research participants, as people coming up with research ideas, as people conducting the research, recruiting for the research, everything, um, so that the findings, the benefits of whatever is found 
actually are more applicable to us. Right. And so when you discuss how representation is really important in the research process, I'm just reminded of um, health communications, because Mm -hmm. when I think about the pandemic, I know that uh, health communications and uh, ineffective health communications really led to a lot of inequitable health outcomes. Mm -hmm. And so I'm just wondering if you have any thoughts about how health communications could be more culturally bound or just more uh, accessible for black people and people who may not have very high levels of education. Yeah. um, Fortunately, there's, you know, a lot of people who that's, you know, their specialty. There's a lot of, um, you know, kind of theories and, and disciplines of, of study that inform that. Um, I think, again, a lot of that is going to be about representation, who's delivering the message um, is a big part of it, explaining things in, in terms that are relevant to people and their values and what they care about. Um, I also think that, you know, oftentimes in public health and when we're trying to disseminate information, um, a lot of times it's about figuring out who who are the leaders, who are the kind of popular opinion leaders in a certain community and, you know, kind of working with those folks first. Um, traditionally, a lot of times it's faith communities like, you know, ministers or something might be a first point of contact. But it, it could certainly be a lot of different folks, depending on what communities or populations you're trying to reach. But really kind of trying to figure out who who are the leaders here who, if we talk to them and help them understand, will then be able to kind of relay that to the community um, who is trusted right. uh, in that way. Um, so I think those are some of the strategies that can be used. Yeah, I like that. I definitely do believe that people can hear the most from people who they relate to the most. Mm-hmm. And so one thing that I do appreciate appreciate about you and your research is that you include um, people from your populations of interest to kind of help with your research. And I really like that. Um, so we've discussed research and equity, uh, how research is important for marginalized populations. And now I like to discuss uh, a bit social determinants of health. I know that your research and practice center health behaviors among queer men living with HIV. Could you share any insights on social determinants of health and health maintenance behaviors for this population or just vulnerable populations in general? Yeah, that's a pretty big question. <laughs> um but when I think about, and, and so as you said, you know, I'm a, I'm a physician, I'm also a researcher, and, and most of everything I do is focused on young black gay men who are living with HIV. Um, and so certainly social determinants are, are critically important, um, to everything that, that I do, both, you know, kind of as a physician and as a, as a researcher. Um, you know, when I think about kind of what are the, what are the main ones that, that come up a lot? Um, it's, it's a word that people are, using a lot and overusing and I hope that you know to never misuse but I think one term that comes to mind is about intersectionality right and so it's not that you know being black is the hardest thing or being gay is the hardest thing or uh living with HIV um but that the combination of all of those comes with um certain stressors and of course also comes with resilience and and with positive things as well um I think that a lot of times the Stigma against people living with HIV is probably one of the most um, salient factors that uh, my patients and research participants have to face. Um, It's very closely linked to homophobia, um, and um, that sometimes comes from within families, sometimes comes from within communities, but also comes from larger society as well. Mm -hmm. Um, 
But then even outside of those things, there's a lot of things that, you know, as, as you well know, just being a black man in America, um, and this is not to generalize or to say that everyone's experience is the same, but many of the issues that many of my patients are dealing with are not necessarily focused on HIV or even specifically on, on being gay or, or sexual minority. Um, a lot of things would be better if, um, you know, if my patients could all find a job and <laughs> have educational opportunities and, um, and again, that's, it's, it's not to say that they're unrelated, um, because some of that, uh, economic insecurity, housing insecurity might be related to, um, families who aren't accepting about sexuality or things like that. So that's what I mean mm -hmm. when I talk about, you know, kind of looking at it from an intersectional perspective. It's all very closely linked. Um, but yeah, there's a lot of different social factors that impact folks' health, both on the individual level and on a larger community level as well. Right. I like that you mentioned HIV stigma. Um, I definitely would like to move into discussing some of the misconceptions about HIV. Mm -hmm. um, so throughout the pandemic, we've witnessed how misinformation can work to the detriment of how health outcomes. Um, what are some common misconceptions about HIV as it concerns transmission, treatment, and quality of life? Yeah, so I'm really happy to have the opportunity to hopefully uh, dispel some of these myths to anybody that might hear this. Um, I think the biggest ones, I mean, one is this uh, notion that HIV is a death sentence, which fortunately has not been true for several decades now. Uh, in the early days of HIV, when it was first discovered in the 1980s, long before you were born, um, <laughs> and and really before even I can remember, but um, it was that way, and and so many lives were lost, and um, and that may be the way that many people remember HIV or were first introduced to it. But thankfully, there have been amazing advances, um, you know, through medical research and. Because of that, HIV is now truly a treatable chronic illness. Um, so people living with HIV and, you know, I almost, I, I don't like that anyone is still getting it, but I like when I get the patients who are newly diagnosed because I feel that I have a hopeful message for them to mm -hmm. say, none of your dreams for your life should change. Mm -hmm. This is not, this does not to me change the way I look at your life trajectory the life expectancy is, is roughly the same as it would be without it, provided, mm -hmm. of course, that you are able to come to your doctor's appointments and, and take your medicines every day. Um, but I think that's the biggest thing that that I always want folks to know, whether they're people who themselves are living with HIV or otherwise, but it, is that it, HIV is now a treatable chronic illness. Um, and then I think the second thing that that I really want to stress and and hope that folks know and that we can make sure that more people know um, is about transmission. Um, and this relates to the, the piece about stigma, but a lot of the stigma was because people were worried that, you know, they could acquire HIV through casual contact with a person that was living with HIV. Right. Um, and that's completely not true. We know that you can eat after someone's on, you know, plate or, sit on a toilet seat or hug somebody, none of those things are high risk for, or or even possible risk. It's impossible right. um, to transmit HIV in those ways. Not only that, but even the ways that you can transmit HIV, so through sex, uh, unprotected sex, through sharing of needles, 
If a person with HIV is on medications consistently so that they have what's called an undetectable viral load, they cannot transmit HIV to someone else. If, if they tried, which people don't, but if they tried, they couldn't. Mm-hmm. And, and so I think that a lot of this fear, um, around people living with HIV is really not only wrong or unkind, but, but not founded in science or consistent with what we know about how the virus is spread. Mm-hmm. Um, and so those are kind of the two biggest things I would want people to know. One, that it's a treatable chronic illness and two, that you can't just get it, you know, from, from casual contact with someone or even more intimate contact with someone who's, who's on treatment. Right. Um, so you did emphasize that people, even um, after contracting the virus, still can live full and healthy lives. Mm-hmm. And I really appreciate that. Could you talk about uh, some health resources that are available to people um, that do diagnosing, like perhaps through local health departments or state health departments or even community organizations? Like how can people access these resources to know their status? That's a good question. Um, certainly. um like the CDC has a lot of great information online about HIV. So kind of like fact sheets and things like that. Um, local health departments, almost all are going to provide things like HIV testing, as well as access to care or what's called pre-exposure prophylaxis for folks who, you know, might be at risk, but are, are still HIV negative. Um, and then there are a bunch of, um, uh, nonprofit organizations around town. So like, um, Aid Atlanta or AHF, there's, um, positive impact. There's a lot of kind of, uh, organizations that are, that are focused on, on HIV that provide some of these services. Um, and HIV testing is, is recommended as, as part of routine care for all adults. So, um, really even, you know, for people who have access to a primary care provider and, and are going to doctor's visits, that's something that, that should be provided there as well. Mm-hmm. Okay, so moving into policy, um, as it concerns HIV, a major policy issue is the criminalization of HIV, in which the transmission of the virus is punishable by law and can even result in incarceration. Um, I know that policy change is a very long process and it can require years or even decades of groundwork just to change cultural attitudes and social views um, before you can get to legal change. So when I think about that, a good example is uh, perhaps gay marriage. like. Mm-hmm. You know, gay marriage really was underway um, for decades. Like I know as a person with a background in psychology, I know that psychologists began pressuring the APA um, to take homosexuality out of the DSM as early as like the 1970s. So we know that things like that can just take a long time to mm-hmm. to kind of produce policy change. Um so what cultural shifts do you think need to occur to bring about policy change as it concerns HIV criminalization? That's a great question. Um, and first, I want to just kind of add something to what you said about the laws. So it's even worse than that. It's not only that you can be penalized for transmission, which is wrong in and of itself. Mm-hmm. Even if you don't transmit the virus to someone else, but just have unprotected sex with somebody and you're mm-hmm. living with HIV, even despite what I just told you when we talk about the last question, that you could not transmit HIV if you tried, if you're undetectable and on mm-hmm. treatment, even those folks can still be prosecuted. So it's really even a worse law than, mm-hmm. than, than, um, you know, kind of what we've discussed. That being said, um, in terms of the cultural shifts that are needed, um, 
That's a good question. I think that really kind of making some of these things more mainstream knowledge, I hope would help because clearly this policy is rooted in fear Mm -hmm. um, that is not consistent with science, with what we actually know to be true about the virus. Um, And it's rooted in stigma. Um, So I would hope that um, greater understanding in more of society about what HIV actually is Mm -hmm. and what it's not and how it's actually spread and how it's not. I would, I would hope that if we can change the culture so that these things are more common knowledge are, are better understood, then that that might hopefully pave the way to changing some of these really terrible laws. Yeah, I absolutely agree. And so we've kind of framed HIV advocacy as sociocultural work. And so what do you think HIV advocacy may look like for everyday people? Like what, what does that entail? Um, I think it could be a few things. So I think one is about educating yourself um, and others around you. So I think that's the first step, right? So if if somebody's listening to this or, or watching this and is like, oh, I, I didn't actually know that, you know, um, then maybe they can take it upon themselves to visit, you know, the CDC website and, right. and read up some of the fact sheets or, or some other uh, reputable resources like that. And then to share that information with other people and to, you know, the same way we talk about, um, you know, allies when we're talking about uh, racism or misogyny or homophobia or things like that. It should be the same kind of thing, right? Like we want our allies to speak up. If if you hear somebody making a off-color comment about people living with HIV or something that's not, you know, correct, to to step in and correct that. No, actually, mm-hmm. that's not true. Or actually, that's, you know, really hurtful. And and so to start in our own circles, I think that's part of it. For sure. Um, and then, of course, there's kind of more, you know, formal advocacy. We can be contacting our our legislators about these laws making it known there's a prior it's a priority i know that uh, organizations like uh, georgia equality um and some others uh, have been you know working on this so you know kind of working with um, organizations like that volunteering your time making phone calls things mm-hmm. like that to um to try to affect those laws would be another way as well for sure um as we kind of round out, do you have any last things that you think are really important as it concerns HIV, HIV advocacy, any stigma or misconceptions or anything of that nature? Um, I, I think I've been able to kind of stress the most important points, but I'll just say them again because I don't get tired <laughs> of it. It's a treatable chronic illness and, and you really uh, can't get it from casual contact with folks or at all from folks who are who are on treatment. Um mm-hmm. And so just uh, would want to encourage you and and whoever sees this to, you know, please kind of uh, spread that message and, and do our part to, to end stigma against people living with HIV. This has been the More Conversations podcast at the Andrew Young Center for Global Leadership. Again, my name is Ty J. Jordan. I'm a senior psychology major and sociology minor from Baltimore.